Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Before we jump in, we wanted to share a quick review from one of our listeners. Linda writes, I have been listening to the podcast for some time now. I have so enjoyed all of the episodes. I listened to all the previous ones, sometimes more than once. I'm looking forward to the Kidlet and am planning to join Patreon soon. I love books and your episodes are so enlightening. I have selected books from your recommendations and I highly recommend your podcast to all who love books and reading. Thank you so much for those kind words, Linda. Your reviews help our show climb higher in the Apple Podcast rankings, and that makes it more visible to new listeners. It also helps in the search engine and the recommendations algorithms. Like if you liked this show, try this. So if you haven't left us a review, please take two minutes to write a few words about why you listen to novel pairings. It's a quick and free way to show support for our work and We're just so happy every time we read a new review from you, like this one from Linda. It just feels like a warm hug to us. Thank you, Linda. And thanks to everyone who's reviewed our show lately. It really, it really makes us feel good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to talk about A Wrinkle in Time. Um, I feel like this is one where I'm coming to our discussion without many fully formed thoughts, and I'm Mm. looking forward to processing this book with you. Honestly, that feels like the right way to come out of this book. I think I would be concerned that you were a secret physicist or something and had a deep (laughs) understanding of (laughs) of like quantum physics or philosophy that I didn't know about if you came out of this book and were like – I have all of the things to say about a wrinkle in time. Um, I feel the same way about this one as I did about Alice in Wonderland, which is I liked my reading experience. This wasn't really one of my favorites when I was a kid, but I think that I will like it all the more for discussing it. I understand its importance. Um, It's not like a cozy comfort read for me or anything, but I think discussing it is going to be really fun today. Yeah, I this is one that I have kind of considered a childhood favorite, but I hadn't reread it probably since high school. And so I was really excited to return to it. It's one that I've been like, thinking like, oh, I can't wait until I can read A Wrinkle in Time to Louise. And it was, I don't want to say disappointing, but I wanted it to be that warm return and it wasn't that feeling. So I think that's part of what I want to process today, which might be difficult because I don't really remember my first reading experience of it. I just remember like really liking it and and talking like you know citing it as a favorite. Um so yeah, I I'm I'm curious, but should we do a quick summary for anyone who maybe again hasn't read it since childhood and then get into our uh discussion. 
Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So (laughs) A Wrinkle in Time was published in 1960 and received the Newbery Honor in 1963. Although I'm questioning my stats on that because my copy, which super retro, really fun, um, has the Newbery Award medal. But then the inside publishing date says 19... Well... Yeah, it says 1962. Maybe maybe that's not altogether correct. But anyway, really fun retro copy. Um, but A Wrinkle in Time, published 1960. It's a Newbery uh, Award Medal winner. And combining physics, philosophy, magic, and religion, this novel defies simple categorization. Publishers rejected it 26 times citing that it was too difficult for children and outside the bounds of existing genres. But Madeline Langle remained stubborn, and she didn't want to change her story of the Murray family. Meg Murray is an adolescent girl with a brain for math and a tendency to start fights, and she sets course on an intergalactic adventure with her younger brother, her neighbor, and three mysterious figures to save her father and the fate of the whole world from this amorphous evil being. Great summary. Because <laughs> what a <laughs> what a weird one. <laughs> it is a really weird book. It is. And I haven't read much of Langle's other works, but I know she wrote a lot of journals and memoir just about like her cozy family life. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it's really interesting that she came up with this super weird story. But apparently she was really interested in physics. She was... Deeply religious, which we'll definitely talk about in relation to this book, but I think that her faith looked really different at the time from um, what we might think of as like a traditional Christian faith. Um, And so, yeah, we have this really weird, fantastical combo of a lot of things. I understand why publishers were like, this does not make sense. No, thank you. Yeah, I I will say that I listened to the I I went back and forth between my copy, which is my copy that I read as a kid, but not um not as cool and retro as yours, um and the audiobook that I got from my library, which I will which could be part of what didn't hit me right, but. My audiobook copy had an afterword read by Madeline Langle's granddaughter. Did yours have that? Yeah, I ended up listening to the audiobook, and the afterword honestly made the reading experience. Me too. For me. I was like, okay, I like this way better now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you wanted to save that for later in our discussion, but I just i I felt like you know what she shared about her grandmother being this like very. Um, just a a woman who was resistant to the status quo and mm-hmm. gendered expectations and then you know not being forced to but just making the decision to move to the suburbs with her husband and settle down there to raise their family leave the theater world that they were both part of and that that's where she wrote this book that made so much sense and unlocked so many layers of the book that I liked more than what I was getting from my own reading experience. Yeah. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with being a grown up reading this book, because I think you can be a kid and you can 
use your imagination and make it come alive in certain ways and just have a different understanding of it. Whereas as a grown up, it's kind of like, okay, there's this weird little story. None of the characters seem very relatable to me as a, as a grown up, at least. Um, and honestly, it, it reads like a classic. Like you read it and you're like, okay, this was written in like the 50s or 60s, <laughs> which it was. And so the sort of like story around it to me as an adult does definitely appeal more. Agreed. Well, let's talk about the characters because you you brought that up that they didn't feel real to you. Um, and I have to agree. So what did you what did you think of of them? The kid, let's I guess start with the kids. Yeah. So we initially meet Meg and it seems like she's going to be the main character but she kind of she isn't she isn't throughout the the book and she is like misbehaving in school she's acting out and through the book you kind of pick up clues that she's actually acting out and getting poor grades because she's gifted not because she's or and because she's just kind of like not um she doesn't have her father at home. There's like stuff going on, right? Um, I think that the big way that Meg doesn't feel particularly real to me um, is just I think it's just the way it's the it's the '60s writing to me. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the dialogue. It feels very dated, and maybe kids reading this back in the day would have thought differently. I don't remember reading this in fifth grade and what I thought of it. I do remember that I was such a nerdy little <laughs> dweeb that like I probably liked that the kids were talking like grown-ups and mm-hmm. that they were super hyper intelligent and that um they like didn't sound like kids. I think I probably that probably appealed to me. But reading it now, Charles just bugged oh, the crap out of me. He was so Me annoying. Too. And I think part of it was just the narrator, like with his his little voice <laughs> saying deeply profound things in this tiny little voice. And it was it was just really annoying to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And I remember loving Charles Wallace, like just thinking that character was so precious and precocious and darling. And I got, yeah, I got so annoyed by him so quickly. I will say I I actually liked the beginning of the book. I agree that Meg did not feel real. And I, I think even so, small things like the way that they call their parents mother and father made sure. it feel so like dated and, and unrealistic for today. Um, but I really felt Meg's loneliness in the beginning. Yeah. And I, I think that that has been, I know that that has been something that, unexpected for me as a reader and a new mom, seeing characters experience profound loneliness, especially children characters, is like very upsetting to me now. I think I just like project my daughter into that situation and I just Mm. never want her to feel that kind of isolation and loneliness. And so I was really moved by the beginning, by like Meg's fierce loyalty to her family, the way she like just felt so isolated and lonely at school, but was, you know, refused to um, conform that she was still just like very loyal to her weird little family. Um, I, I really, I really liked that part. Um, I do think that this book suffers from 
something that a lot of children's literature does, and I will be excited to continue to explore this throughout our semester. Just this like, uh, like not like other kids trope, like this like degree of specialness. Like you have to be so smart to be like special and chosen and that there, and I kind of like that about Alice where Alice is like not special. She just like falls into this other world. (laughs) So I, I, you know, not only were the kids so brilliant, but like the mother was so beautiful and we had to talk over and over about how beautiful and brilliant she was. And I was just like, I get it there. This is a special family. (laughs) At the same time, we have Meg experiencing anger and fear in a way that I think a lot of kid lit characters, particularly in these older books, maybe wouldn't mm-hmm. where, and we have the Mrs. W's, I'm going to refer to them <laughs> just for short. We have them telling her, use your anger and harness that fear. And it's okay to be afraid and it's okay to be angry. And so I do think that although these are like special gifted kids, which Again, reading as an adult might bug me, but reading as a kid. For sure. I wanted to be special. I wanted to be gifted. I felt a little bit odd. All of that really like clicks as a kid. And as a grown-up, you're like rolling your eyes, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But um I think Lingle does combat that or does do something different and interesting with sort of those like negative emotions and the flaws. Um, The Mrs. W's tell Meg, use your flaws. Your flaws will become your strength. And Meg's like, how can I possibly do that? I, she's down on herself. It's like classic adolescent, like nobody likes me and I don't like the way I look and I don't like the way I act and I don't like anything about myself. And so I do think that some of those things ring true and I, I like the emphasis on the the anger and fear and the flaws. And so it it's a mix. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I think that is very different from maybe some of the more, not that this isn't heavy on the morals, but some other kind of like, I don't know, morality tales that we can see in, whether it's children's literature, just like fairy tales and fables and those kinds of things that I like that too, that using the anger, not trying to repress those negative emotions, especially in a young female character, that was very powerful. So I do like the Murrays as a collective. I think it's, even though father is gone, it's fun to see how their whole dynamic works and how they've kind of stepped in to take care of each other, mm-hmm. knowing that mother can't do it all. Um, and I like that their mother's like using Bunsen burners to cook dinner. And there there are little things about them like as a family that I like. And then I also liked that when the father does show up, spoiler, I guess, <laughs> um, when they are in the process of rescuing him, he just defers to the kids and mm-hmm. he's just kind of like along for the ride and he just listens to them. And he's obviously experienced a bunch of really weird things. And he's just like, yeah, I'm just going to believe whatever you say and I'm going to go along with it. And I liked that too. Yeah. There was this real respect for the children in this book. And I, I think that is original And really fun to see. And I think especially as a child reader, that would be a very cool thing to see that these parents, you know, they they really value their children's insights and special perspectives. 
yeah, that that is a really cool aspect of this. Okay, so Langle combines like philosophy and religion and the supernatural and science and all of those things in a really interesting way in this book. And I think a fun way to kind of get at that is talking about all of her illusions. She makes so many references. She uses so many quotes and bits and pieces of things from the Bible, from literature, from historical speeches. And I'm curious if any of these stood out to you or connected to certain themes for you. What did you think of her including all of that? Well, no surprise. I think I liked the literary allusions the best. Yeah. All the <laughs> I Shakespeare. Mean, yeah. It, and it was particularly fun to see the Macbeth references and then some Alice in Wonderland references mm-hmm. since we read both of those so recently. And I, I think too that, you know, those are both kind of like weird, dark stories. There's also a lot of Tempest references, which is definitely another strange story about outsiders. And so I liked those references, which felt a little less easy to say, oh, she's trying to make this thematic point with these. It was just like, Mm -hmm. oh, she's adding to the atmosphere and the otherworldliness and the, the texture of this book in conversation with so many others. So of course, you know, with our three witches and they say, when should we three meet again? Like, Mm -hmm. I love that, especially, you know, as the witches in Macbeth are like plotting or, you know, responsible for a total downfall of the character. And then that makes you, that gives you, if you know that illusion, this little question mark, like, should I trust these, these three? What's happening here? Um, So I really liked those moments. But they giggle after. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My favorite is that they totally. say that. And yeah. the kids are like, what are they doing? And they're like giggling about yeah. it. And <laughs> I did I did love that. I think, okay, so I read this in fifth grade. And I can't remember if it was for school or if it's just something that I picked up off of the school bookshelf or if it was for like reading circles. But I went to a Lutheran grade school, kindergarten through eighth grade. And religion class was part of our curriculum, and it was just threaded through everything. And so the biblical references probably just kind of like, I probably didn't even pay attention to them because I was just so used to it when I was young. Um, But I did think, listening to it now, they really stand out. Mm-hmm. I think like the the sort of like hymn references or the the Bible verses, they are very familiar ones. I think you don't necessarily need to have grown up with the the Bible or like have knowledge of these verses in order to recognize that, oh, that is the Bible. Um, yeah, you could even just kind of think of them as like common like Western world mm-hmm. aphorisms almost. Yeah. Yeah. And So thinking of this and just sort of like the mashup of science and religion and knowing that so many of the book bans either come from people being really unhappy because it's like blasphemous and she's including too much science mixed in with the religion or the opposite where it's like too much religion in this book. I just think the mix is really interesting and I actually think I'm a little bit more receptive to Langle's religious philosophy, her sort of like uh, ideas about 
the world and the universe. Now as an adult, when my faith is a little bit more, it feels more fully formed and at the same time less because I have way more questions now than I did when I was in fifth grade, right? So the reading experience was really interesting in that regard for me. And I'm I'm curious about what you thought of those, that kind of mix. I liked the allusions and especially like in connection to you know, other philosophy and philosophers and in connection with the science, I think it, um, you know, probably says a lot about Langle's like mature faith and confidence. Um, maybe confidence is the wrong word, but like, um, well, yeah, confidence in herself and her her decisions and her faith that she feels comfortable marrying these two, what we would consider like different ends of the spectrum of a worldview with her like physics and and faith. I wish I had not been listening to the audio at the part where the Mrs. W's are like, but there are some bright spots in your world that help us see, you know, see clearly into beyond the the darkness of it. And she's like, can you think of who they are? And Charles Wells is like, Jesus. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> I'm not reading this book to my child. <laughs> um, I will. I will say that that line of dialogue in a very different tone. I think if I read it aloud That's to Louise. So funny. Um, but that was like the only part. But I feel like it tainted my experience. I'm just like, okay, I know. I I know that. The, the faith here is important and I love the questioning and I love the complexity of it. And she goes on to list like other artists who, you know, illuminate the the goodness of the, the world. But I, sorry, that was rambly. I don't think I even answered your question. No, <laughs> I just you did. Didn't like that part. <laughs> I was, I was curious to get a perspective from someone who doesn't practice Christianity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because like my experiences right now, I guess it's the like popular way to say deconstructing where I'm like (laughs) figuring out, okay, there are a lot of things that I have issues with from the faith that I grew up in, but I also think there's a lot of beauty in faith. So where, how do I practice this moving forward? And I actually think that a book like this that provides more questions than answers and that does combine more of the like philosophy and science with the faith speaks to me in my present state of questioning way more than I expected it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I too rolled my eyes at the like, <laughs> well, Jesus, because, you know, it is. But also, that is a very like little, if you are it little is. and you yes. are going to church, that's exactly what you would say. <laughs> yeah, but Charles Wallace is supposed to have more nuanced thoughts. <laughs> right. But yes, no, that that did that was the time when he felt the most like a real five-year-old boy. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, I grew up Catholic. I am I am not uh practicing or actively questioning <laughs> right now. Um, but you know, I think we mostly plan to raise Louise Jewish. She she's mm-hmm. um, going to start a Jewish preschool next next year, and I, you know, so I I'm thinking about how I'm going to introduce her to some of these books, be they like children's literature or like you know she grows up and gets older, like that are so heavily steeped in 
Christian understandings mm-hmm. of the world. And I don't have an answer um, at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but yeah, it the, that like so encountering that kind of thing in in a book makes me think like hmm like what will her experience with this be like it will probably be very different from my own experience mm-hmm. reading it and how do we navigate that together which is not to say that like i'm like well it talks about jesus so we're not going to read it right to right her. um but yeah that's a, it's a question for me for sure okay sarah we're going to go on a bit of a journey here so first I want to say, I I don't remember if I read it or if it was in the afterward where, I think I read this, where uh, Langle, her pastor, suggested that she read a bunch of these German Christian writers and she tried and she was bored. She kept falling asleep. And so instead she started reading works from physicists and then yeah, she I decided- think that was- the afterward. I love yeah. that. She was like, I really like these guys and I'm going to kind of stick with this. I really like this concept of the world. And so one of those sort of strands is how she thinks about time. And so some scholars suggest that she's working out her view of the universe and kairos or chirotic time as opposed to linear chronological time, chronos. And Langle liked to call Kairos, some people call it God's time. She called it real time. Hmm. So some examples of this from the book are like time is always being referred to in this qualitative way. It's not like, oh, well, we've been here for an hour. We better go. Or the clock is running out. We better go. Like we don't really feel these kids racing against the clock against evil. It's just that the Mrs. W's will say, this is the time we need to take action Or we get Charles Wallace at the beginning of the book who's like, it's not time yet, but we're waiting for them. And, oh, it's time now. That is Kairos. But there is this really, uh, and I'll certainly add a link to the article in the show notes, but in this article about Madeline Langle and time that I read, one scholar said that there is a literary application of Kairos. And it can determine why a particular work of literature resonates with a particular audience in a particular time and place. Mm. And so I thought that was a really lovely way to think about it. I think that's something that we talk about often here, but I never thought about it in terms of Kairos. And so I thought that would be fun to talk about with A Wrinkle in Time and sort of place it in some historical context and what we think about that and then just kind of ask if it is relevant and still resonates with some things today. So that's, this is the time journey that we're going on. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I had skipped this, I guess, in my reading, but does your copy have this like family tree in the beginning? No, it does not. Okay. So mine does. And I learned from some additional research that, you know, she has her wrinkle in time quartet and then she has a book series about another family called the Austins. Mm-hmm. And at some point they they link up. In one of the books, they she does like a, you know, crossover special. And in my book, the Murray O'Keefe's family, because I guess spoiler in future books, Meg and Calvin end up together. It says Kairos 
And then for the Austins, it says Kronos and then it defines Kairos as uh, real time, pure numbers with no measurement, which that just makes my mind explode a little bit. I don't understand what pure numbers with no measurement means. Um, <laughs> and Kronos is ordinary wristwatch alarm clock time. I also just really like linguistically, I'm hoping she wrote this or like helped draft this. She did. Okay. I, I love the like play between real and ordinary because I think sometimes mm. we use those as synonyms and I like that she's using them as antonyms here. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Um, so anyways, I, I, I'm very excited to talk about literary Kairos, but I, I find that this whole like world that she's created of parallel times I mean, they're not like parallel universes, but people experiencing time in different ways and how that can link up to be fascinating. So based on what I read, and I think that this is in the article that I'm referencing, I think that you would really like to read this one, Sarah. It was it was great. Apparently, Langle like conceptualized the Murray family around that idea of Kairos and conceptualize the Austin family. Like that's not just the times that the families Mm. are experiencing, Mm -hmm. but it's like who they are as people as well. Oh, interesting. So, okay. I, that's really interesting. I like thinking about that in terms of the families and the characters. I, um, because I taught at a Jesuit school, Kairos was super important as an Mm -hmm. idea and as a literal retreat. But I also remember learning that Kairos in Greek mythology is a god, the god of like luck and opportunity. And he only has like a ponytail, like one strand of hair on the front of his head. And so when he's coming at you, you can grab him by his hair and seize the opportunity or seize the Mm. luck. But if he passes you just a little bit, there's nothing to grab onto anymore. And so I Mm. also really like that imagery and metaphor for like, for real time or God's time of like seeing the opportunity coming at you, but having to like actively seize it. It doesn't just mean that it like fall, you know, falls into your lap. Um, and we see mm. that for sure with the kids, right? Like, like just because the time is ripe and right, it doesn't mean that there's no work involved. They still have to seize mm. the moment for, with you know, a lack of a better phrase. Mm. Okay, I love that. So, part of the article, and then also this connects to some of the really lovely things that um, Langle's granddaughter said in the afterward. Um, it was talking about the rhetoric of Kairos and how Martin Luther King Jr. used it in his I Have a Dream speech in 1963, which was when Langle won the Newbery Award. And it wasn't drawing <laughs> comparisons between these two or wasn't saying <laughs> yeah. that she was specifically inspired by him. Um, but that sort of um, call to now is the time. This is the time. Um I think with the civil rights movement is really interesting and I can see some echoes of that in a wrinkle in time, or I can see that it was something that she was paying attention to. Um, her granddaughter says specifically that that sentiment when Meg says, 
like is not the same as equal, Mm -hmm. um, that that always resonated to her as connected to the civil rights movement. Um, We're also coming to this book fresh out of World War II. I mean, it's it's only been, you know, like a decade or two since um, the war ended and plunged into the Cold War where authoritarianism and, you know, dictatorships and the threat of communism is really scary to a lot of people. Um, and then it's also it's the early 60s. Where we're going to get into some like new agey stuff. And so I think that this this book is very of its time. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think that, I mean, one of the most obvious messages of the this book is that like resistance to conformity. And that just, that does really feel resonant with this this time period. And I, I, yeah, I think you, I, you and this article might really be onto something about this book seizing the moment it was, it was in. And, you know, it seemed like she had tried to get it published for several years and somehow like the, th- everything kind of aligned to make it the, the right chirotic time for this book to be published. Mm-hmm. So her granddaughters run her Twitter account. Oh, cool. Um, and just posthumously, like, they they do a lot with her legacy. Um, they wrote a biography. They, like, they do a lot to preserve her legacy. I think it's it's really, really sweet. Yeah. But anyway, out of their Twitter account, um, anytime that, there is sort of like a moment in U.S. politics or world politics. They like to respond without responding by saying, stay angry, Meg. They they tweet the quote um, about Meg harnessing her anger. Um, and I think that that's a really sweet way to keep the book relevant today. Um, I didn't, f- I don't know if I felt like it was particularly resonant. I do think it would be a fun read aloud with kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if kids still love this one today. I mean, it's it's still in print. It's still being read in schools. I just don't know if they it, it can connect with the language. And, you know, like we said, it reads like a book from the 1950s. I, I don't know how well they connect with it. It's also like, these are all, this is a very white family. It's very Western Christian um, and centered on U.S. politics. Like there's there's not a whole lot of diversity of experience here. Um, so I wonder about its relevance today. Well, I love that about the Twitter. And I think that the line, stay angry, Meg, is one of the best in in the book. Um, and I, I, I completely agree that that feels particularly relevant. I think that, um, I mean, we, we've just seen so many books about women's anger and women's rage being written nonfiction and fiction in the last five, 10 years. And so that very much does feel, feel relevant and resonant. I am curious. I'm curious if kids still read this. I'm curious about the reception of the film, which I have not 
watched, um, but I love Ava DuVernay read the appreciation in the audiobook, and I really liked hearing her love for the book, and I love the way she kind of has, seems to have made the story her own and and um, diversify it herself <laughs> as she created the film. Um, I also think that this book is so like so much kidlet seems to owe something to a wrinkle in time. Like the idea of like not being equal is like the basis of the giver. So many dystopian books that have emerged in the middle grade and YA genre. The part where like Meg defeats the dark, the the it, the shadow, because she remembers that she is loved is like, like, I feel like J.K. Rowling like totally stole that <laughs> for Harry Potter. Like they just, there's so much um, that felt familiar, even if it didn't still feel particularly um, modern, if that makes sense. I do think one other thing that doesn't necessarily, that makes it feel more classic than contemporary is that the kids are fighting against this evil thing without a lot of physical, like, action-packed fighting. Like, it's all in their minds. It's all in their hearts. Like, it's all this emotional battle. And I think that that is fascinating. But one thing that I I loved, um, since you just brought up Meg fighting and remembering she is loved, I loved when, um, again, I don't remember if I read this or heard it in the afterward, but I, th- I know what you're going to say in the afterward, and this is my favorite. <laughs> that Madeline Langle hated when people talked about the power of love because to her, love was vulnerability. And to me, that took what could be a really cheesy part of the book and made it so beautiful and mm-hmm. stirring. Right. That it was, you know, like this resistance of like stability and sameness and um, I don't, consistency. That's what remembering about love was, was like this, this, like you said, she said, vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, the risk of loving and being loved. That's what conquered um, the shadow, not the overwhelming power of it. I agree. I think that is stunning. So I think what we're saying is you should read this afterward. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was my favorite part of the book for sure. I'm so glad that I did the audio for the ending because I had been planning on finishing the last chapters in my book and then I would have missed that. So Mm -hmm. um, that was fantastic. All right, Sarah, I think this is a good time for us to move on to pairings. And I can't wait to hear about what you're going to pair with The Wrinkle in Time. Well, I know you had thought about pairing this one too. And then when you went in a different direction, I snatched it up because I love this book. Um, So my first pairing, but I know this is a cosign, is When You Reach Me by Rebecca Steed. Um, This is another Newbery Medal winner. It, I think it won in 2010, 2009 or 2010. Um, and this book has a kind of 
simple plot that ends up being very complicated. So the protagonist is in sixth grade. Her name is Miranda. And she starts receiving these like random notes. And she doesn't know who they're from. She's in this state of being completely unsettled because her, she and her best friend have had a falling out. This was, she's definitely an outsider like Meg. She's kind of isolated and alone. Um, and she feels even more alone after this, this friendship ends. The notes don't initially make her feel less alone. The notes like seem to be able to predict the future and that is unsettling to her. And then they predict that somebody is going to die unless she can stop it. And so what she has to do, she's given this mission of like writing a her true story so that she can can save the person who is in danger. I um, read this aloud when I was co-teaching a fifth and sixth grade classroom. This was our read aloud for a portion of the year. And my co-teacher picked it (laughs) and I hadn't read it. And I was just like reading like along with the kids. I didn't read because we weren't discussing it or anything. It was just read aloud. And um, I was like, on the edge of my seat every time I'd be reading or he'd be reading. I'd be like, can we just like keep going? Let's, we don't need to do any other work today, right? The, there's so much amazing mystery in this plot. The characters are fantastic. I love Miranda. Um, and this is a like mind blowing book. I don't even, I don't want to say any more really about why it pairs so well with A Wrinkle in Time. Um, I think it it pairs well in large part because she's just doing something so different. And it is really about human connection and relationships. And I think the vulnerability of being in a relationship with others, whether that's friendship or or love or family. Um, And man, I did not see this ending coming and I loved it. And it's sad and beautiful and perfect. Um, I think adults would really like this one. Uh, I did as a, as an adult, but I think, I, I think this is going to be a classic for many years to come. So that's When You Reach Me by Rebecca Steed. I love it. Okay. I have some nonfiction that I think Madeline Langle herself would really love. Oh, cool. So I'm pairing The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred by Shonda Prescott-Weinstein. And my dear friend, Ruth Ann, who you might know from Instagram as definitely RA, she is a huge fan of Madeline Langle, especially her nonfiction. She's really passionate about Langle's books and her work. And she loved this book. So I'm going to read a a quote from the book and then just a couple bits and pieces from Ruth Ann's review because I think that that explains the connection just better than I possibly could. Just as Adrian Rich once said about art, there is no simple formula for the relationship of science to justice, and I cannot provide a simple prescription or algorithm for linking them. 
but I do know that science, in my own case, the work of studying the origins and history of the universe, means nothing if it simply decorates the dinner table of power that holds it hostage. So that's just an excerpt from the book. And this book combines particle physics, feminism, social justice, science, and memoir. And it's really about how science and politics and identity just completely weave through everything about our lives. Ruthann says that she loved the whimsical wanderings and hard-hitting knowledge dropping and didn't totally understand what space-time is and still cringes at the thought of doing physics, but treasured the awe of the night sky and this critical look at the work of science. And so I think that this is a lovely companion piece to A Wrinkle in Time and explores a lot of what Madeline Langle is exploring, but from a completely different perspective from a Black woman scientist who is knowledgeable about all of these physics. And so this is one that I have had on my TBR for a really long time. And it's a, it's a slim, beautiful cover, really lovely book. So that is The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Oh, that sounds great. And I am curious to read some of Langle's nonfiction. I have a copy of one of her books um, that was gifted to me by a publisher, and it's a gorgeous book. Um, and I just, again, like I think that probably a lot of it would be a miss for me given um, her, you know, her focus on on faith. But I do think she has such an interesting perspective and worldview and the way she marries these things. I, I, um, I, I'm interested to know that Ruth Ann is a Langle nonfiction super fan, and I will be curious to pick some of that up eventually. All right. My second pairing is Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang. Um, and Ted Chang is one of my favorite sci-fi writers because I feel like he wait, did I pair this with with Slaughterhouse Five? I think so. I think so, but that's okay. I'm pairing it again. <laughs> Remember our philosophy that yes. people have to hear about books at least five times before they pick them up. <laughs> okay. Well, this is at least time number two from me. Um, I will say I I did recently read um, Exhalation, his second collection as well. And it is also excellent. So if you read Stories of Your Life based on my previous recommendation, I also recommend the second um, collection of his. But Stories of Your Life is a better pairing for A Wrinkle in Time, primarily because of that title story. You may be familiar with this because it was the basis of the movie Arrival with Amy Adams. This story, A Story of Your Life, is one in which he's exploring the idea of time, the philosophy behind how we see time, what is ordinary time versus real time, how much of the way we experience time is due to our own limited perspective and ability to perceive, and how we might make choices about who we love, what we do with our lives, how we spend our days, if we could perceive time differently or if we could perceive time the way 
it really is in the kind of lore of this story. And it in in this particular story, which is almost more of a novella, um, we meet a scientist who is um she's actually a linguist. She's called in when all of these spaceships in various parts of the world land and each ship has these has two alien creatures on it who are trying to clearly trying to communicate. And so uh, the government brings in all these linguists to work at the different sites and try to figure out what these creatures are saying to them. Interspersed through that, we see her relationship with her daughter unfolding. Um, and then those two stories connect um, in a really, again, mind-blowing sort of way. If you've seen the movie Arrival, you know the quote-unquote twist or the revelation, but the story itself is a lot more philosophical and in-depth. And so I really recommend reading it, even if you've seen the movie and know the outcome. Um, I just think that Ted Chang, like Madeline Langle and like Kurt Vonnegut in very different ways, is using science and science fiction to explore philosophy, human emotions, perception, religion even. Um, and I just think that they're they're very much in conversation with each other. I, I'll also throw out that um, the opening story of Stories of Your Life is about the, um, I think it's about the Tower of Babel. And so since everybody's reading Babel right now too, I think that'd be a good time to pick up Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang. All right, I have one more nonfiction book to pair and then just a couple of recommendations for people who might want to read more Madeline Langle after this. Kind of kind of my TBR because like you, I would really love to read more of her nonfiction. So you see this book on the shelf and you think, this is just another self-help book. It's 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. But you're wrong. This is not self-help. This is philosophy. And so instead of actually being a book about time management, this is a book about the philosophy of time and how to manage your time according to a different philosophy around it. So Oliver Berkman's thesis really is like, we generally have about 4,000 weeks to live. That's like the average lifespan. Knowing that you have 4,000 weeks, how are you going to spend your life? And he goes through a lot of philosophy and um, just like concepts of time, I believe that Kairos is mentioned quite a bit. And just talking about like, like I said, the philosophy of time and how we spend our lives and how to make decisions about how to spend our time that will feel fulfilling and won't make us constantly feel like we need to be more productive or like we're not doing enough. And I loved this book. I listened to it on audio and it's one that I really want to reread. I think it's absolutely fabulous. And just given our entire conversation about time today and the way that Madeline Langle viewed time as this like important universal concept, I think that this is a really lovely pairing and I just really wanted to recommend it. I really want more people to read it. So it is 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. 
And it is not the boring productivity, self-help, preachy book that you might think it is. It is really fun to listen to, lovely, philosophical, and reflective. And I love this book. Okay. And then um, really quick, Madeline Langle books. A Circle of Quiet or the Crosswick Journals, I think are good places to go if you want to read more about her life and her experiences as a creative and her family life. And then also there's a graphic novel for A Wrinkle in Time. And I think that is probably a great book for classrooms and for the story to come alive for young readers today. So that's one that I'm really interested in taking a look at. So I just wanted to throw those extra recs out. Oh, cool. I, um, I'm i very curious about the graphic novel. I, I would love to see the way an artist renders so much of this weirdness. So, all right. Well, I feel like I still don't have necessarily answers even about how I feel about this book, but I feel much more settled in my reading of it. I felt unsettled afterwards <laughs> because it just felt like whiplash going from like citing this as a favorite of childhood for so long to being like, what is this book? Um, so I'm very grateful for this conversation. I always love talking about these books with you, Sarah. And this was really interesting. So I read A Wrinkle in Time and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe really quick back to back. Like maybe there was a day in between when I finished one and started to read the other. And they're absolutely in conversation with each other. I think it was a fascinating reading experience. And so I'm so excited to jump into our next reads and just discuss all of them together. So join us for bonus episodes filled with more conversation about Madeline Langle and C.S. Lewis and Philip Pullman and all of these kidlit fantasy books. We will have bonus episodes with extra kidlit context with book recommendations. And then of course we have our online events to deepen your reading experiences like book club meetings with classic readers like you. In our Patreon member community, we're learning to be better, more critical and thorough readers of classic and contemporary literature. We love discussing books and reading with all of you. So we hope you'll join us at patreon.com slash novel pairings. Annual subscriptions are available and it's never too late to join. If you feel like it's mid-month and you missed out on the first part, the good news is you can go back and listen to bonus episodes. Our classes are recorded. And so anytime is a good time to join us to talk about classic literature. For announcements and other important updates from us, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter, which is at novelpairings.substack.com and follow at novelpairingspod on Instagram. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to discuss both The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis and The Golden Compass by Philip Pullman. Until then, we declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than